We're, we're continuing in this series of messages on the rich life and, and really getting a chance to reconsider what it is to have a rich life. And uh, the rich life, we've said, and want to continue to reiterate from yet another perspective this morning, is really the life of loving what we have. The most unhappy person in the world is the person who loves what somebody else has. And you may remember even last week as we talked about uh, the idea, the same idea, but from uh, the passage in Philippians chapter 4, you may remember that I mentioned uh, uh, Rockefeller and his statement about uh, people assuming that rich people are happy. But that, he says, from the position of being a very rich man is simply a fallacy. We are not rich because of what we do not have but long for. We are rich because of what we have and enjoy. So the question in part that comes to us this morning is, what do we have? And I want to remind you that we've talked about a couple of different things that we have here. We've talked about what we have when we have very little. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, we talked about Paul addressing the believers, and Timothy in particular, saying that we can actually be content when all that we have is food and clothing. And he didn't say rich food and fancy clothing. He said, with the very basic essentials of life, we can be content. So we can be content in such a place when we have very little, when it is true that we are building our lives on that which is to come, on the life that is yet to come. And in that message, we talked about the fact that really in this very real sense, this life is an appetizer. The main course is coming. Who tries to fill up just on the appetizers? No, but we satisfy ourselves in the reality of the life that is yet to come. So we can love what we have when we have very little, even just food and clothing, by building our lives on the life to come. And last week we talked about the fact that we can love what we have when we have even less than little, even less than little, by calling on the strength and provision of God. And you, you might remember that Paul addressed the fact that his less than little involved all kinds of terrible things that were a part of his ministry and he still could practice contentment. And he gave us his secret. It's a secret that you find on plaques in homes everywhere, but often disassociated from the true specific context of that, of that promise. Do you remember what the promise was? Do you remember what Paul said in Philippians chapter 4 that's often on plaques and walls of homes? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's right. So we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, particularly in regard to being content. Do you want to know how strong your God is? Check it out. He is so strong. Your God is so strong that he can make you content with less than little. That's a strong God. That's a powerful God who's at work in us to do a work that we could never do on our own. And you may remember as well that, that Paul said, that goes on to say that our Father has all the supply we need. So we can do everything that we need to do, everything that we need to do through Christ who strengthens us, and that involves being content with less than little, 
And we can count on the supply of God when we need it. But this morning, we're actually venturing one step lower. So we've talked about what it is to be content with little, what it is to be content with less than little. This morning, I want to share with you from Hebrews chapter 13 what it means to be content with loss. What does it really mean to be content when what you have is lost? And in order to do that, I want to introduce you to the people to whom the book of Hebrews was written. And so we're not actually going to begin in Hebrews chapter 13. I want you to look back at Hebrews chapter 10. Raul and I did not orchestrate this this morning, but he actually read the passage that is now going to be before us in Hebrews chapter 10, from which I want to introduce to you the Hebrews. And so Hebrews chapter 13 is where we're going, but we're starting in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. And let me read it one more time for you. Follow along and listen to who these people were. Who were the Hebrews? Verse 19, chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened us for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water." Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some is, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Who were these Hebrew believers? Well, they were people who had a confidence, a confidence so great, according to Hebrews chapter 10, that they were urged to enter the holy places. And you might notice that it's not just a statement to those people then. The author of Hebrews actually involves us. He says, therefore, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. So we share a lot in common with these Hebrew believers uh, who were confident or had the capacity to have confidence to enter the holy places. They share a lot of similarities with us in terms of uh, their character, their temptations, and the needed remedy for that set of temptations. And you'll find here in verses 19 through 22 that there's a specific uh, encouragement to these believers who have confidence to enter the holy places. This is what he says. He says, so draw near. You have confidence, so do it. Draw near to God in faith and purity. Don't just stand out in the cold. The temptation, I think, that we often face when we, who also have capacity by the grace of God and by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we have this ability to draw near to God, but we say, you know, I'm going to try and work on my life first and then draw near to God. I'm going to try and fix a few things up so that I will be able to approach God with confidence. But the, the end of the matter is very simple. The only basis for confidence the only way that we can come to God is not by a patched up, sort of mended life, but by Jesus himself. And that's what, that's what we're being told right here. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Now, that's the sum total. That's it. That's the only way. If you're looking for something else, um, you're in the wrong church. 
Because that's the only way that we come near to God. Now, out of our confidence to draw near to God comes an opportunity to reflect the character of God in faith and purity. So the author of Hebrews admonishes these Hebrew believers, do draw near, do draw near in faith and purity. And he's building toward a great um, chorus that he's going to develop in chapter 11, which we're not going to touch this morning, on faith. And so he's building to say, look, come believing that God is who he said he really is. Come believing that God is going to do for you everything that he said he will do. So come, draw near to God. Don't try to patch your life up, to fix it up on your own, and then come near to God. That actually cultivates, that fosters a belief that is completely counter to the true nature of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we have Christ, then not to approach God with confidence is to say, catch this, to not approach God with confidence if we know Christ is to say that he is not enough. Matthew Henry, uh, a commentator, uh, speaking of the Hebrew believers, said this. He said, they must draw near to God. It would be contempt of Christ still to keep at a distance. And that can be said to us. It's not just to these Hebrew believers. They needed to be bolstered in their confidence. They had the basis for confidence in the blood of Jesus to come near to God. Now the, apostle, the Hebrews author says, so do it. Draw near to God in faith and purity. Don't stand out in the cold. Come, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Practice the personal holiness, which is the evidence of God's work in you as you come. So draw near to God. That's who these people were. They were people who had the capacity to draw near to God. And the author of Hebrews says, so do it. But they also were people who needed to bank everything on the character of God. In verses, verse 23, you read this in chapter 10. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. You know, your hope is not founded on your ability to keep your promises to God. L let me remind you of that one more time. Your hope for the future is not founded on your ability to keep your promises to God. But on God's ability to keep his promises to you. Who is your God? Who really is your God? Is he the one who is able to deliver on what he says he'll do? This, this book tells us right here that this God, verse 23, is the one who is faithful. The immutability, the unchangingness of God is a rock to which we can anchor everything in our experience. Everything around us shifts and changes and, and is different from day to day and even hour to hour, but not so with our God. In fact, just a little later in the book of Hebrews, later even than what we're going to be looking at in chapter 13, you find that famous statement in chapter 13 that says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's the unchangingness of our God. And that unchanging character of God is this, we're told in chapter 10, that he is faithful. So if in fact that's true, that he never changes and that his character today and yesterday and tomorrow is faithfulness, then what am I doing to put my trust anywhere else? Bank 
everything on the character of God. This is our God, the God who is faithful, who is faithful forever. So the writer of Hebrews says to these people, don't give up on your hope. Don't give up on your hope because God who promised is going to come through. They needed this assurance. They had the basis for confidence to enter the holy places, but they were struggling. And I'm going to show you in a minute why they were struggling. But you can hear at the beginning, they, like us, share a common access to God through the blood of Jesus. They were to draw near to God. They were to bank everything on the character of God. And they were to then stir one another up. To stir one another up, not to neglect, to meet, and to encourage This is a point that seems particularly apropos in our specific time in history when it's easy to say, I don't think that it really matters whether we get together or not. But the fact of the matter is, this passage tells us very clearly that we are not very specifically to neglect meeting together. It doesn't say, you notice, how often or exactly what that looks like, but he says, don't quit meeting together. That's the habit of some But you are to encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What are you to do when you do come together? I mean, that's maybe a good question for us even here this morning. What are we here for? And he tells us that we're here for pretty much three reasons, at least in this passage. There are other passages we could look at that would give us a greater perspective and bigger context. But in this passage, we are here this morning. This is why you're here this morning. Together, we are here to provoke each other. <laughs> well, um, yes, but listen how we're provoking each other. I mean, I'm pretty good at provoking. I, I used to, um, I'm the oldest brother of three. And um, so I had lots of practice growing up provoking. And um, my younger brother, my second brother, could tell you uh, that very clearly this morning. I would just nettle him long enough that he would do something rash like hit me, and then he would get in trouble. That's not what the, you know what I'm talking about, right? So um, my parents wised up to that, but, um, but that was my kind of my modus operandi, was to just bug him long enough to, to provoke him, right? That's not the kind of provoking that we're talking about here. We're talking about provoking one another to love. So how can you encourage the person next to you to love more. Well, that's a different kind of provoking. That's a chance to to literally say, I want to help this person love God and love their neighbor better than they've ever done it before. We're going to break up here in a few minutes after we're done with this message, and we're going to get a chance to practice. Yes, that's what we're going to do. We get to provoke one another to love God and to love each other. But that's not all you're supposed to do. You're supposed to provoke one another to love, and you're supposed to provoke one another. We get the chance to to provoke each other to do good. To do good. We get to provoke to loving and to doing what is really good in the sight of God. There's going to be chances. You watch. When we break up here in a few minutes, you will have chances. There will be opportunities before you to encourage someone to do what is good and right. It sometimes takes courage to do that. It it really does. Because they actually would like to do what is wrong, right? And what is bad. I mean, sometimes we do. I, I do. And so I need you to encourage me to say, no, Rob, do what is good in the sight 
of God. We all need one another that way. And that's why we don't neglect to meet together. So we don't neglect to meet together so that we can provoke each other to love, to good works. And this is how we encourage one another in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back. You know, um, if we neglect to meet together, we're kind of forsaking the idea that we're going to get to spend all of eternity together. For people who think they would like to just go and, and spend life as a hermit somewhere and love God on their own, um, they've kind of missed the point of what eternity is going to be all about. Because we will forever be together praising God, loving him, and doing good. So that's, that's what the Hebrews are being encouraged to do. They have the confidence to enter the holy places. Now the author of Hebrews is admonishing them, so do it. Do it specifically by drawing near to God. We know from James that if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. So don't stand out in the cold. Don't just say, um, I think that I'm going to try and fix my life up and then come to God. He says, come, draw near to God on the basis of the blood of Jesus and bank everything on his character. His character is faithful and he never changes. And when you're doing that, stir one another up, remembering that Jesus is coming and that you'll get to spend all of eternity together forever. So really, the Hebrew believers had the basis for confidence. But as I said, they were struggling. They had the basis for confidence, but they had needs that were causing them to consider other options. So, the author of Hebrews goes on in chapter 10 to say, keep your confidence. You have the basis for confidence. Keep your confidence and claim your reward. Let me read to you verses 32 in the same chapter, chapter 10 through 36. And this is what Hebrews says here. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And this is what he says. You're, you're catching what their condition is like, right? Not so pretty. That sounds like loss, right? Therefore, he says, verse 35, do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. It's the maintaining and the keeping of this confidence that the author of Hebrews has in view when he launches into a description of the people to whom he's writing. So now we're hearing a description of their recent experience with suffering. And he describes them really, overall, as a people who know loss. While they were still young in the faith, they endured a hard struggle, he says, a hard struggle with sufferings. The idea of struggle is like an athletic contest. It could even be a combat that would mean death or martyrdom. They had seen some pretty hard days, really hard days. They were, in fact, insulted, ridiculed, and shamed. You might remember Psalm 42 and verse 3 and verse 10 when the psalmist is having his enemies cast in his teeth this statement. 
Where is your God? That's the kind of struggle that they were having here, perhaps, as they struggled to say, here we are, we're being insulted, we're being ridiculed, we're being shamed. Where is God? You hear just why then. It's so important that they know the character of God and bank everything on his faithfulness, right? Because it would be easy to say, where is he? You know, this isn't the first time, and the psalmist wasn't the only other time, in which this kind of need arises in a very distinct way. In fact, you might remember Matthew chapter 27, and the Lord Jesus having those very same words cast in his teeth. They said to him, on the cross, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Shame is really its own form of suffering and loss. Shame really is its own form of suffering and loss. I don't know if you've experienced shame before, if you've had the chance to taste of its bitterness, but there is something very unique about being mocked for what you believe, or mocked for the God that you trust, or mocked for misunderstanding of what people think that you believe. There is something very acrimonious about such shame. These people were insulted, they were ridiculed, and they were shamed for what they believed about their God. And God didn't stop the suffering. You're, you're tracking with that, right? They actually went through the suffering. Now, God could have stopped the suffering, and he is faithful, but he did not stop the suffering. So now you can feel why the author of Hebrews is pressing them not to throw away their confidence. You have been through suffering. God did not stop it. Don't cast off your confidence just because you have experienced shame. But they were even further down the track of loss than that. They stood together with other people who were mocked or who were ridiculed or who were shamed. Now, it's one thing for someone to come directly after me and say bad things about me or about what I believe or about my God, but it's quite another to voluntarily align myself with other people who are being so abused. One of the most shameful moments in my high school career came from that very uh, problem, in my experience. I was over at a friend's house in Loomis, and uh, Loomis is uh, a neighboring town to Penryn. I know you all know those places, so that's why I'm telling you. <laughs> Loomis, Penryn, the tiny, tiny dots on the map. Nobody knows where Loomis or Penryn is, but, but these tiny dots on the map. So I was, I was over at a friend's house in Loomis, and there was a, a whole group of young people together, and our friends had a pool. It was Northern California. And so we were having fun in that pool. And as we started having, as we had fun, as sometimes can happen, kids um, lose the perspective on what really fun is and start just, uh, you know, persecuting someone. And I happened to be the someone they decided to persecute. And so they, my brother and I were there, and they started dunking me, which, you know, isn't real fun, especially when you feel like you're really the brunt of the joke. And uh, I was a good swimmer, and I knew how to hold my breath, but it wasn't very fun. And my little brother came charging to my rescue 
and defended me. He lined up with me, even though I was obviously the guy who they were out to get. And so you know what they did next? They started dunking him. Yeah, that's right. And that's what it is to line up with people who are, uh, who are being insulted or ashamed. You get to participate in their suffering. I would like to end the story there and tell you that's all that happened. But here's what really the problem was. I, like Peter, when he was said to be, oh, well, you must be one of Jesus' followers. He said, I don't even know who he is. I took the, my Peter heart right out in the middle of that situation. And so my brother, running to my rescue, I'm the older brother. I should be doing pretty well here, right? And uh, he runs to my rescue. He lines up with my suffering they start dunking him, and you know what I did? Nothing. I let them just have him. That actually caused a lot of pain in our relationship, by the way, because that level of disloyalty, that level of, of unwillingness to identify with someone who is being shamed is really, really a major problem, not just in a family, but in the family of God. Now, these Hebrew believers had done differently. They had stood together, though it was not their particular shame or suffering. They had already had their own. But they also chose voluntarily to line up with people who were suffering so that the dirt of their, uh, their rejection, in one sense, fell upon them. So they stood together with other people who were suffering and experienced the shame You can feel the kind of loss that they were knowing. But that wasn't all. They also welcomed the plundering of their property. In verse 34 it says, chapter 10, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Listen now, since you knew you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Did you see that it says, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property? (laughs) I'm always trying to preserve the things that I have. I am not looking to give it to someone who wants to just take it from me. When I was a boy, we had chests of drawers. And in those chests of drawers, we had one particular drawer that was um, allocated by mom for all the stuff we wanted to keep that had no other home. It was a mess. We called it our junk drawer. My brother had one, I had one. And uh, so our junk drawers, and about once a year, mom made us clean our drawers. I hated it. Because it wasn't that I so much needed the stuff that was in that drawer as that I didn't want to part with it. And the idea of cleaning your drawers, of course, was that you would part with some of those things and or at least organize them, which we managed to stretch out into a days-long project. It was terrible. It was one drawer in a chest of drawers, and we made it a huge project. It was on one of those events that I remember running across probably a, a chocolate candy bar that I had been given the previous Christmas. And um, I'm a saver. And um, I had been saving this in my drawer. And, of course, it had been long since forgotten because it's in the junk drawer. And who even looks in the junk drawer except for the saver and to hold on to stuff? And so uh, I pulled it out, having to go through the drawer. And I opened the candy bar, and I found that it had done what chocolate does when it sits long enough. 
it had turned to like a white powder. So I told my brother to lay down on the floor and close his eyes. We all like to save things. We like to savor things, and it doesn't always go so well. These people actually welcomed the plundering of their property. They said, this really belongs to God. We love our things. We value what we have. And I suspect that these people were no different in nature than what I am because that's the normal state of the human soul. It was that they could see beyond the stuff to the treasure that really mattered. Stuff that wouldn't just decay. Stuff that wouldn't just rot. We've only really been burglarized that I can remember twice. And um, it was on one, t- at one time when we were living at a different house than we currently live in. Uh, and we had been on vacation. And we uh, came back home. Uh, Ella might remember this, I don't know, but uh, we came back home, and someone had tried to kick the back door in, and we'd had it pretty securely locked, and so they had kicked pretty hard, but it had a deadbolt, and uh, they hadn't been able to get in. They cracked the door frame, but they hadn't been able to get in, and um, so they had apparently resorted to another method of entry and had taken a firewood log that was outside and chucked it through the window, so we had glass everywhere, and the log was still in the house, and we went in to find the place in shambles, to find it just, drawers were pulled out, things were sorted through, but the only thing that we could find that they had actually taken was a jar of coins. I don't know if they were, they were probably druggies, and so they were looking for money, and we didn't have much, so they took the only money that we had laying around, a jar of coins, out. So it wasn't so much just the loss of it, as it was the sense, as Melissa put it, of having been violated. Now I want you to think of these people experiencing real loss, the plundering of their property, and the sense of being violated. And they joyfully welcomed it. That is an amazing description of people who really believe that what's coming is more important than what they have right here, right now. They were shown no respect. They were reduced in the eyes of their assailants to nothing more than a quick, easy way to get stuff. They were treated like they had no rights, like they were disposable, and they welcomed it. That's not to say that they liked it. That's ridiculous. Even our Lord Jesus didn't like suffering. He didn't choose the cross because it was attractive And like their master, these people welcomed being plundered because their stuff wasn't their treasure. They had better things, things that couldn't be stolen just beyond the horizon of this life. That's who these believers were. Keep your confidence, the author of Hebrews says. Don't throw away your hope because you are people who know loss. Now, I've actually told you all of that so that you would understand what you're about to hear in the full depth and gravity of it in Hebrews chapter 13. These are people who know Jesus and by his blood have access to the holy places. You're with me. That's the first thing we talked about. The second thing is that these were people who knew loss and frankly who probably knew loss in ways that you and I really have never experienced. Maybe some of us have in certain ways. But they knew ridicule and shame 
and suffering and the stealing of their goods in ways that most of us will never probably know. They knew loss. And it's to these people that Hebrews chapter 13 is addressed. And in Hebrews chapter 13, as you turn there, if you'd like to follow along, we have a set of seven staccato commands. And I'm not going to go over those seven commands today. I have one command I want us to look at this morning. Just one command from these seven. And it's in verse 5 of chapter 13. And here it is. I want you to keep in mind these are people who know loss. And it's to these people that the author of Hebrews says, keep your life free from the love of money. Well, they don't probably even have much money. But you know what's interesting? It doesn't take having money to love it. Right? It doesn't take having a lot in order to be able to love what you don't have. I think we get confused between the love of money and the idea of being rich. Rich people do not necessarily love money, and poor people do not necessarily disdain the things of this life. So while these people had, in fact, welcomed the plundering of their goods, that doesn't mean that they were free from the love of money. In fact, if you want an interesting illustration of this, just try going to the grocery store before dinner. You're hungry, but it doesn't mean you don't want food. I mean, even passing the broccoli aisle might make your tummy growl, right? And so it's not that you have or do not have that's being addressed primarily here, but that what you have, you keep your life free from loving money. Keep your life free from loving money. Poverty need, are, in fact, good entry points for faith. And James even tells us in verse Chapter 2, verse 5, that God has chosen some of the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. But poverty has two edges. It can either drive us to trust God, or it can drive us to try to accumulate enough so that we never need to experience such want ever again. That would be the love of money. And so we're warned here not to let the love of money get a foothold. We're reminded of what Malachi read, us, read to us this morning from the Sermon on the Mount. No one, Jesus says, can serve two masters. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So keep your life free from the love of money. In other words, refuse to let money be your master. We labor often under the delusion that we can be our own masters. William Ernest Henley's famous poem Invictus captures that idea, expresses that belief that's inscribed often into our souls. He writes in one stanza of his poem, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's pretty much a description of the Western ideal of freedom. But it's not the Bible's view of freedom. The Bible views freedom as being servants to someone or something in some way. In other words, from God's perspective, it's never that you are not a servant. You'll hear that resonating in places like Romans chapter 6. You were servants of the things which you formerly did, and now you are servants 
to God. It's not like you are not a servant now. No, no, no. We are all servants. The question is who it is or what it is that we are serving. Here the writer of Hebrews says, refuse to let money be the one you're serving. And emphasizing back again what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. So the question has to be asked for us, by us individually, who really is my master? Jesus tells us that in the area of material goods, we have a choice. We can either serve money or we can serve God, but we cannot serve them both. So the author of Hebrews warns these believers who had experienced so much loss not to allow money to tell them what to do, not to let money tell them when to do it, not to tell money, let money tell them who they will do it with or how long they will do it. Don't let money be your boss. I wonder if we really stop and think about it for a moment, how often we let money be the primary driver in our decisions. That's essentially what we're being told here happens if it is your master. What is the primary driver in my decisions? Is it the money? I'm convicted right there. I, I stand convicted with you right there. Because often the primary question that I am asking is, what does it cost? Or uh, whether or not it makes financial sense. Now, that is not to say we are not to be prudent, that we're not to foresee the evil and hide ourselves, as the book of Proverbs assures us, but that the primary driving determining factor in our decisions is not to be money. It's to be the plan of God. If we love money, the number one thing we will consider when we make every decision is the money itself. If we are really truly servants of God, the number one thing we will ask is what does God want? Now remember what we just said in the previous sermon that God has all the supply that could ever be desired through the riches that he has in Christ Jesus. If God orders something, will he pay for it? Well, yes, I believe that in theory. But so many times when it comes down to practical decisions of contentment, I actually think that if I don't scrabble for it, it won't come. The author of Hebrews says, refuse to let money be your boss. Don't let it be your master. Make sure that God himself is your master. God can supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. He's not going to run out of stock. And the supply chain problems will not hinder the delivery of his goods to you. That's a particularly hard message, though, to people who know loss intimately. Think about it. When you have lost what do you want most to hang on to what you have remaining? Right? That's, that's, certainly, that's certainly the case for me. When I have little, I want to cling to what I have. The writer to Hebrews says, no, you have very little. You've known a lot of loss, so let go of it. <laughs> wow. So let go of it. Refuse to let money be your master. And he gives us the countermeasure next. And he says, not only refuse to let money be your master, but be content with what you have. Be content with what you have. So they, these people who knew ridicule, who knew what it was to stand with other people who were mocked and shamed, even to be robbed of their possessions, they 
were to just be content with what they had. Now, to help us feel that a little bit more deeply, I want to remind you of the nature of loss, why it's so painful. Loss is so painful because it's irreversible. Uh, Sometime back, years ago now, uh, I don't remember how it happened, but a particularly precious teacup was knocked off and onto the floor, I think it was, um, one of my wife's teacups, and it broke not just into a few pieces, but into many, many pieces, and it was special for, I don't remember the reasons that it was special, but it was a special teacup, and so she gathered the pieces together and glued them back, but it never was the same. It never looked like what, it, it was deformed, misshapen, and just a cobbled together bunch of pieces. That's the way loss is. It can never be made quite the same again. So many times I've worked with glass for years and years and years. And, and, uh, and you come to that point where something inside a window breaks. And it's a terrible moment. Glass doesn't just fix. You can't just glue it. You get to totally repair the whole thing. Loss is irreversible, and that's one of the reasons that it's so painful. But it's also separation. Loss is separation. You, you might remember the story when the Judeans were taken into cap- captivity by the Babylonians. They caught the king, whose name was Zedekiah, in the plains of Jericho as he was fleeing, and they brought him before Nebuchadnezzar, and then they slaughtered all his sons while he watched. And then, to seal the memory forever, they put out his eyes. So that the last thing that he would ever see, ever, ever see, would be the blood of his sons running. Loss is separation Nothing Zedekiah could ever do in his wildest dreams or most hideous nightmares could ever bring those sons back. He was utterly separated from them by the loss. And loss is also something that pertains to what really matters to us. It's losing something of consequence. It doesn't matter so much if it's something of little consequence, but... When it's something of real consequence, that thing makes a very deep stamp on our souls when we lose it. It's when something super important is taken from us that we suffer so deeply. I haven't often been scammed over the course of my life. That's not to say I couldn't yet be, but, uh, but I have been scammed once. And it was at a particularly low point in my family's life when we were <laughs> trying to start a business in a ridiculous occupation and had little kids to care for. And we were here in the Ferndale area. And the little minivan that my parents had given us, because we didn't have any money to buy anything, uh, had given us to take care of our family with, um, developed a strange sound. It's been long enough now that I don't even remember the nature of the sound, but it was a sound that indicated something was wrong. And um, we didn't have money to take it to a mechanic. And so, and I'm not very mechanical. My dad's a mechanical engineer, and he's also good at doing mechanical things. I both dislike it and don't have a very uh, strong aptitude for it. Maybe it's because I don't like it. But uh, in any case, so we didn't want to take it to a mechanic because we could see that this was going to cost us a fortune, no matter what the problem actually was. 
a guy heard the sound of the car and said, oh, I recognize the problem with that, and I'm qualified to fix it. I thought, this looks like a real possibility, because I certainly, he's going to be cheaper than a garage, and so I invited him to my house to come take a look at the car, which he did, and I think he did it then again, and it was at the conclusion of the second or third time that he looked at the car, though he hadn't apparently done anything to the car, that he said, I, I know what we need now, and we need some money for the parts. So that seemed reasonable enough to me. And so I gave him the money. That was the last time I ever saw him. That was painful, not just because I lost money, that's always painful in its own right. But it was painful because I lost money at a very low point. You're with me, right? That's what these Hebrews have experienced. They've lost at a very low point, And at this very low point, what matters has been taken from them. Really, we could say it this way. Loss is the irreversible separation from what matters. To put it into a sentence. Loss is the irreversible separation from what matters. You can't start over. You can't make it right. You're separated from what really matters. Death is the greatest and the most certain loss that we can know. It irreversibly separates us from someone who matters deeply to us. Someone that we love. We all know something about this kind of loss and even if you haven't personally experienced the death of someone close to you, you can count on the fact that it will happen sometime. In fact, I was so afraid of this kind of loss as a boy that I thought, I don't think I ever want to get married. Because if I get married, sure enough, at some point, that person who has become so dear to me will be taken away from me. And you know... That was not untrue. But there's an overriding and greater truth at play. It is true that in loss we are separated from what really matters to us. But we still can do according to what the author of Hebrews says and be content even in loss. We can refuse to let money be our master. We can be content with what we have. How can we do it? I have good news. That's what the author of Hebrews tells us next. Now, I don't know where your thoughts have gone. Or if you're busy writing, I'd encourage you to put your paper down. Put your pen down. Because what I have to share with you next is one of the most powerful, beautiful realities that I have ever known. I've been looking forward to this message for this reason. Because of what I'm about to tell you. So I want you to hear me very clearly. Verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he, God, has said. I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
so that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. At the point of your greatest loss, you have the greatest possible asset at your disposal. And not far away, not just a God who is in heaven, though he is, you have God who is beside you, who is within you, who promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And on that basis, you do not need to cast away your confidence, even in the position of loss. You can join the Hebrews in confidently saying, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. Essentially, if we have Jesus, we have enough. If we have Jesus, we have enough. We can be content with little, food and clothing. We can be content with less than little because of the strength that we receive through Jesus, we can be content even with loss because what cannot be taken from us is always ours. What really matters can never be lost. In 1820, the whaling ship Essex was in the middle of the Pacific Ocean when it was rammed by a sperm whale and sunk it became the makings for the great story that you know, Moby Dick. Herman Melville took that base story, which really truly happened, and wrote his own fictional novel on the basis of that. It made a great novel, but it made a terrible experience. Those men, for more than three months, in the middle of the Pacific, dying of starvation and dehydration and even cannibalism, it made an indelible mark on the few men who survived. They never forgot it. The captain was George Pollard, and he, did have actually, he actually was one of the very few who lived, and he did make it back to their home base in Nantucket, Massachusetts. And he also went to sea again, which is a little bit amazing to me. The next ship he was on also was wrecked, not by a whale, but one thing that Captain Pollard did when he went to sea again was he strung in his cabin a net full of food because he never wanted to be hungry like that again. But Captain Pollard was in error because he couldn't keep the food. And I think sometimes that's where we go right about this point. We try to capitalize on holding on to the little bit that we have rather than to capitalize on the supplier of everything that we have. We trust the provision and what we need is the provider. We hoard our few cups of water when what we need is a well. Do you remember what happened when the Israelites made the golden calf as Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving the law? Moses came back down in chapter 33 of the book of Exodus and found the people partying and carousing 
Moses interceded for them, or God would have wiped them out then and there. God relented from completely destroying them, but thousands of people died due to the justice that God meted out through the Levites and through a plague that he sent to the people. But the worst judgment of all was what God did next. He told Moses to go on ahead into the land, but I'm not going. Now, he didn't leave them without a pretty strong hope. He said, I'm going to send my angel before you. Well, that's a pretty good compromise. I mean, especially for people who have just been carousing around a golden calf. That was rather gracious of God, I think. He said, I'm not going. Go on, go on, and I'll send my angel, and he will drive out the Canaanites before you. Moses said, not a deal. No going if you aren't going. He said it specifically, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses knew that, the, that God's presence is the sign of his favor. Remember what the angelic host sang at the birth of Jesus? Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Emmanuel came. God with us came to those who were objects of the favor of God. His presence was the sign of peace. God's presence is really the distinguishing mark of his people. You hear Moses saying that specifically here. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? What other people has God with them, is what Moses could have said. We are the only ones who have their God with them. That's our distinguishing mark. It's the only way that we're separate and unique. And so, we can go back to the book of Hebrews and say, since he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, that wherever you are, in whatever loss you're experiencing, in whatever difficulty you face, and some of them are pretty lonely, you are not alone. You are not alone. The author of Hebrews is actually quoting here from Joshua chapter 1 and verse 5 to make his point. Here stands Joshua. Moses, the great leader and the lawgiver, has just died. The people are stiff-necked and rebellious. The land to be conquered is great. The inhabitants are strong. And God says to Joshua, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Can you feel the pathos? Can you feel the necessity of God with Joshua? Now the author of Hebrews turns it around and says, that's not just for Moses. That's not just for Joshua. He says, this is for you. You, you are not alone because your God will not forsake you. No matter what loss, your God will not forsake you. And he says, so you do not need to fear. Here, the author of Hebrews is quoting from Psalm 118, verses 5 through 7. Here's what it says in the 
Old Testament version of this same passage. Out of my distress, the psalmist writes, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It almost seems to me irreverent or even maybe spiritually simple to say it, but this is what God says. He says that he is with you as your helper. Think about it. The God of the universe is at your side in this matter. He has your back. What do you need to fear? Who could possibly make you afraid And God is not just with you as a companion. He is with you as a companion. But he's not only with you as a companion. He is with you as a companion who has all the power and the might and the care and the interest to do exactly according to your need right where you are at, at your point of greatest loss. God is not a powerless onlooker. There are times that I would like to help someone that I'm with, but I don't know what to do and I don't know how to do it. Years ago... Melissa Hemorrhage, after a miscarriage, I was with her, but I had no idea how to help her. I was there, but I was powerless. God's not just a kindly, well-intentioned companion. He is the Almighty He has the ability to deal with every one of your most difficult problems. He has the power to help you through your deepest losses, through your darkest valleys, through your blackest depressions. He can help you, and he is with you to do just that. God is not a detached spectator. Sometimes I don't really want to get involved with the people that I'm with. Yes, I'm their companion. I'm with them. But I don't want to get down to the dirtiness of their particularly messy situation. That's not God. God is with you to help you. He is up to his elbows in whatever trouble you face. He brings all the power of Almighty God to bear in your messiness, and he's not afraid of getting dirty in your ugliest problems. He is with you as your helper. Don't throw away your confidence in this God who is faithful forever. No wonder the psalmist and the author of Hebrews rejoins, I will not fear what can man do to me? When we are discontent with loss, what we're actually saying is that we don't believe that Jesus is enough. That we don't believe that God is who he said he is or that he'll do what he says he'll do. That's hard medicine to swallow. Medicine that I must swallow. But the problem with my experience is not in God. He is very capable, and this God is with me. And my, any discontent that I experience is not due to shortcomings in him. He is with me to help me by all of his almighty power. Many years ago, back in the early 1990s, I had the chance to go to Russia several times. And it was on one of those trips. We, the first time we came across, we flew into Helsinki, Finland. And um, 
and then drove across from Helsinki to, it was still Leningrad at the time, and now it's back to St. Petersburg, I think, unless it's turned back to Leningrad again. In any case, it was from Helsinki to Leningrad. We drove across the border. Uh, now, if you want to see a border, the border with Finland and Russia is a good border to see because they mean business. There were literally soldiers marching up and down the line. Probably not so much to keep Finns out of Russia as it was to keep Russians from escaping to Finland. The bus was driven over mirrors, and somehow we got in. It was a tenuous time for Russia. I remember still being told on one of those trips, as things were changing for the country, that the, um, they said uh, they, they had these bread factories that were state-run. And so these bread factories were the supply of bread, and people waited in very, very long lines to get their bread. But as things were changing, they said, well, at least... Under communism, we had bread because now they couldn't even count on that. This was a people acquainted with loss. On one of the trips, we ended up in Moscow, and um, we ended up having dinner with the pastor of an unregistered church. His name was Peter Peters. Peter Peters... ...knew the experience of the Hebrews... And that he had actually personally been in prison for eight years for his faith. One of the pastors who was traveling with us, his name was Dr. Brandon, asked Peter Peters through a translator, what scripture was it that sustained you? He had a family. We met his wife. We actually traveled to the little church that she took us out to which is in, was in something like a glorified chicken coop off to the side of the road. They didn't want us to take the state-run and tourist buses. They don't want to be seen at that point in time in Russia's history. He asked him, what scripture, Peter, sustained you during your years of imprisonment? It's a good question. But the answer was better. Peter Peters said through a translator, it was not a particular scripture that sustained me. In all that loss, eight years in prison, away from his family, it was a Russian prison, may I remind you? It was not a particular scripture that sustained me. It was the presence of Christ. It was the presence of Christ. This one who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Oh, his word is how we know him. But his presence never leaves us in our greatest loss. How can it possibly be true that we can be content when what we have is loss? We haven't been in prison for eight years for our faith. But we know loss. You know loss. I know loss. How can you be content when the very thing that matters most and has been irreversibly taken from you? The answer for Peter Peters, the answer for the Hebrews, is the answer for us. Jesus himself says, I 
the God of heaven will never leave you nor forsake you. So that we may confidently say, what can man do to me? I invite you to enjoy such contentment. And such a contentment that knows that if we have Jesus, we truly have enough. He has made you a promise. Do you believe him? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, that you, our God, would be our helper, that you would be with us is something that's so astronomically amazing that we can't even begin to fathom it. And yet here we stand. Here we stand as people who have been made a promise by a God who is so faithful, who never changes. What you've said will come to pass. You will do according to your plan. Right now, in our place of deepest need, in our place of darkest loss, right now, you are with us. So we do not need to fear. We do not need to fear. And we can deliberately choose to be mastered by God, not money. And we can, in fact, be content with what we have. The real secret, we know, to truly being content is knowing that you are enough and that you are with us. Would you help us to carry that from here, we pray, that we would join with you, that we would lean upon you, that we would incline to you, that we would look for you in every circumstance, whatever the loss may be, for Jesus' sake. Amen.